gentlemen and otherwise, and welcome to the Daily Brain Bleed. My name is Jeff. My name's Tucker, and I went to the bank earlier today. Okay, all right. Some we we verged into financial discourse. Well, I mean financial in the broadest sense, but this wasn't about me depositing money or withdrawing money or anything like that. It's just I, over the past uh, year or so, have come to understand that uh, I have a problem. It's it's not a bad problem, but it's an issue that needs to be resolved. You see, for the past 10 years or so, I've been slowly accumulating this comic book collection, you know, with no, for the most part, no real intention of ever making a big investment thing on my part. It's just, hey, I like a comic book. I'll get one every now and again. But it's been happening over a few years, and... I came to realize recently that I was sitting on an ungodly amount of merchandise, not only just in volume, but in uh, price. I think I'm sitting on like $2,000 worth of comic books. So, you know, I knew, oh, yeah, cool. It's It's fun to have this around. And I did have this sort of thing going on. But now I'm realizing that I'm at a point where it... It's beyond my capacity to really store it in any way that, uh would preserve it long term so i was thinking about getting a security deposit box and let me tell you probably not a good option for my for what <laughs> i'm doing here Pro- i have no real idea of how to preserve this and i'm actually spiraling right now the, the problem is like there's nothing that you can do around here as far as archiving to the best of my knowledge like i tried calling the archivist at the uh, kingsport public library they never got back to me and i'm like <laughs> Yeah, the the social services around here to protect our most valuable uh, things as a society. That is my comic books. They're they're they are non-existent, and frankly, that's uh, bothering me. Well, I uh, this is a weird niche problem. This is a, this is a very <laughs> strange and specific. I mean, I would say, I don't know. Like, can you keep them in a safe with a dehumidifying packet? Yeah, maybe. It's, the, the thing is, it's like apparently you want some level of humidity, is my understanding, to prevent like pages from getting all wonky. Now it's like I'm under a ticking ticking clock to make sure that I preserve the value of these books. You know. Well, I mean, such such is life on the old investment market you know what i mean when you when you have something that's worth money it's always a a hot iron in the fire is it not yeah and you know it's putting a great deal of pressure on on me frankly to be a good steward of these culturally significant items like you know dracula appearing in marvel comics yeah i feel like i have a certain degree of responsibility frankly to bequeath this to the next generation in a way that not only would it be the case that I make money at some point, but also I enrich society. This is a truly philanthropic angle yes, for you. And, and it's entirely disingenuous, entirely. It, <laughs> it's funny, over the past year or so, it's like when I knew that, okay, this is valuable and I'm probably going to have to do something about this at some point, I did start buying comics more to like specifically fill out like... Um, you know, spots in my collection where I thought I could be doing better, right? You'd get a Conan the Barbarian comic. You'd get a, uh, you get Morbius because there's that awful looking Jared Leto movie coming out soon. But hey, Ooh. it could be successful. And so for that reason, if it is, I'm sitting on like an old Morbius book and maybe that will be something that people will want. I realized I was a little too late when I found this gorgeous looking 
Eternals number one, just great looking Jack Kirby art. And I'm like, oh, wow, uh, maybe maybe people haven't caught on that this is going to be a movie yet. Maybe I can buy this. And now people have definitely caught on because it was like $1,000, you know? Uh, so a little bit beyond. I think the very most expensive comic that I have right now is an issue of Black Panther from 2003, 2004. It's the first appearance of Shuri, his younger sister. Yeah. And that's like $150 worth of merchandise big money we're big, talking oh here. yeah big, big but, bucks but it's like once you add them all up it's like yeah, yeah, wow yeah. wow wow i'm actually sending all money i don't know this may or may not have been a good bit this may or may not be something that will just <laughs> nuke in the editing room i don't know i don't know speaking of eternals directed by one Claude jaw who just won big at the golden globes that is correct those large golden orbs that we have been accustomed to receiving their blessing of insight as to what is worth anything in cinema. There's heavy sarcasm here right. that is not dictated by uh, our medium, but the, the golden globes did happen and they said some stuff about some movies and given the general content of this podcast, that feels like an organic thing for us to at least kind of cursory do an overview of sure sure and yeah the funny thing about the golden globes is you're right they are worthless and who cares what these people think but it's also one of these things where if you begin pulling on that thread you eventually begin to ask why we even do award shows to begin with which certainly the people behind the oscars don't want us like thinking too much in that no, realm no, no, no. right now either so we all have to like it. It's the polite fiction that we pretend that the Golden Globes matter, but to the extent that they do, and they do in the sense that oh, if someone wins a prestigious award, that can be good for their career and allow them to do other projects. Uh, there were some interesting things going on this year. Uh, we've talked about uh, the award season earlier in this pod and how it's been made a little bit weirder by the fact that COVID hit and. We're really stretching to nominate certain films like uh, Hamilton, which is not a film. Uh, it, wa it was filmed in the sense that it is a play that was recorded. But is it would we really describe it as a motion picture? Yeah, I mean, did they did they go and like make a separate production of it that was intent from conception to be a film? No. Mm -mm. They they took the musical and they put some cameras in it, which is fine. And I've I've openly said before, I think the whole Broadway thing where they're like, we don't record it because you have to experience it. <laughs> that sucks. Mm -hmm. That's gatekeeping. And I think it's bullshit, frankly. So, like, just watch the stuff. So, like, I'm glad that they did that. But at the same time, if we're talking about an awards show that is supposed to be the pinnacles of cinema, mm -hmm. uh, maybe not that. Ultimately, a certain level of gatekeeping is good in the sense that. If if you're talking about films, you can't also be talking about plays. You yeah, know, so that's, that, that's a good gate. We like that gate. <laughs> right. Um, Watergate, bad gate. <laughs> Don't do that. Pizzagate, bad gate. Mm -hmm. um, Gamergate, bad gate. Uh, but, you know, some gates are good. Like, uh, what's a good gate? <laughs> that's a great question. Colgate for your tea. Uh, yes. Colgate, good gate. Um, Bill Gates, uh, uh, mm. neutral to positive, I guess. I don't know. It uh, depends on how you feel. I mean, I, there, I mean, speaking of Pizzagate, there are a lot of those kinds of conspiracy wackos who really dislike Bill Gates. But I mean, you know, 
like all the I remember seeing this meme recently where it's someone drew this picture of Bill Gates and it's like, um, I want to give you the vaccine. And someone reacts and it's going, no, no, you're going to put a microchip in me. And then it shifts to Elon Musk. And he's like, I'm literally going to put a microchip in your brain. And the same person's like, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing in the world. So, you know, the billionaires that we have chosen to stand and the billionaires that we have not chosen to stand as a society it oftentimes seems a little arbitrary. I will die mad that people are wanting Elon Musk to be Tony Stark when he is really just so clearly a green goblin. <laughs> like it what about him screams philanthropy or goodness or wholesomeness? More like he's a philanthropist in the sense it's like, you know, Charlie mangling the word and uh it's always sunny he's telling people I'm a full on rapist, you know, like <laughs> Uh, the, 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 this might be like legally libelous or so. I, I, this was a joke. I would love for his team is, to get a hold of this. This is for parody purposes only. No, you know what? I we're standing by it. No, we're doubling down. Are we? Elon Musk, we? your PR firm. Who, Come at us, bud. Who's we? Do you got a mouse in your pocket? You know? Just... <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. Golden Globes. <laughs> the Golden Globes. Yeah. Let's talk about those for a minute. So Nomadland won uh, Best Picture Drama, which was mm -hmm. great. We already talked about Nomadland, which is great. Um, Sasha Baron Cohen won with uh, Borat. Right. The uh, subsequent one. Yeah, no. Um, going going back, though, to Nomadland, we were talking about this a little bit before we actually started recording, but it, it's funny to actually watch the advertising for this on Hulu and, ev and elsewhere. People trying to bail this up to be like this heartwarming movie about community and everything. And... Uh, you know, do what you want to sell your movie, I guess, but you, I'm not sure I'd call it that, you know? Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely something to be said for getting people in the door, so to speak. Well, I mean, that's very much a figure of speech right now, mm -hmm. but, you know, I mean, I you, you got you got to sell it somehow, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's not how I would sell it, but... Yeah, then again, we, we, are, we are burdened by truthfulness, you know? Aaron Sorkin, whenever I see his face, I want to throw up a little bit. He's just... Who won uh, Best Screenplay Motion Picture yeah. for Trial of the Chicago 7. And come on. That, and that movie uh, entirely mangled the history uh, behind these guys, the actual Chicago 7. These were guys who were oftentimes like radical anarchists and socialists and pacifists and all that. And... He kind of wrote about them as though they were generic hashtag resistance libs, you know, in the movie. <laughs> but no, um, everything that Aaron Sorkin writes is uh, there's value to having voice as an author, but it's it it becomes it, you, its utility becomes limited when all of your characters sound the same and they all sound equally insufferable. And, uh, like someone actually did this video showing like the trial of Chicago seven comparing to, uh, you know, bits on the West wing and everything. <laughs> and Sorkin is literally just ripping himself off at this point. He's, jer he's, he's jerking himself off he, at this point. He's jerking himself, but he's literally just like reusing the same lines of dialogue. Very like he's self plagiarizing at this point. I remember, you remember Thomas in high school. He said this point about the recent Jeff Dunham stuff at the time. It was, man, he's just ripping himself off at this point. And ultimately Aaron Sorkin is just Jeff Dunham. I think 
Aaron Sorkin is Jeff Dunham, but instead of using puppets, he uses like the the actors who I think could be doing so much better right now. But so we th- have so they're kind of still puppets, right? Yeah, I mean, Ooh. we have collectively decided. Ooh. We have collectively decided that Aaron Sorkin is one of the great screenwriters of our time, and you know what? Okay. I want to talk briefly about the field that was best drama series because we have The Crown, Lovecraft Country, Mandalorian, Ozark, and Ratchet. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I just feel like we're missing things in this field. I don't know. Feels I, weird to me. Again, sort of a weak year for all sorts of media. Um, I, need, I mean, I know that there were a lot of uh, series that were in production at various stages that ultimately had to halt for a while succession love that show been waiting a while for the third season um uh, not not a a drama series but the marvelous mrs Maisel, which used to love the third season was pretty awful but i'm willing to see where the fourth season goes if it ever comes out uh so so much has been on pause and for that reason we are nominating things that maybe would not have gone by in a prior year Everyone tells me Shit's Creek is supposed to be the greatest thing since sliced bread, and I I just can't get myself to actually watch this. show. I mean, it's it's good. That's all I'll say about it. like it's it's good. It's a good show. You you can turn it on. I I equate it to a better written and produced version of like you remember how when you were a kid you would just watch the George Lopez show mm. and you wouldn't really think about it a whole lot. You would just watch it. You'd be like, yeah, that was a good half hour of TV, and then you'd go about your day. That's Shit's Creek to me. Like you're not going to change your life watching Shit's Creek, but it's a good time. But I mean, I mean, I just don't, and look, yes, I haven't watched the show, so sue me. But why does it seem like there are like a group of incredibly aggressive fans yep. who are so invested yep. on getting us to believe that this is one of the greatest comedy series ever produced? Like, what is it exactly that's hitting it's, the zeitgeist? It's big adult Disney energy is what oh, that gets me. And I'm sorry if you're an adult Disney listener of this podcast. I'm going to be <laughs> real with you. Your friends don't like that about you. They tolerate it because of other parts of you that redeem it. But like, if you're over 25 and you're still like, I have my Mickey mouse ears, you need to, you need to do some, some soul searching friend. And that's a stance that I have. You can at me, you can draw up my Twitter handle. That's fine. So, I mean, obviously we're talking about the television and Queen's Gambit, right? Um, yeah, Anya won. Anya yeah. Taylor Joy won for this. Um, Which, to be fair, her performance in the Queen's Gambit was absolutely amazing. She did such a good job. I'm not criticizing. I do find it funny how, um, because she was born or grew up in Argentina, I forget how people, like someone with a straight face um, wrote this article uh, saying, oh, she's the most recent woman of color to have oh. to have won this award. And again, this is this is not a visual medium. But if anyone, anyone were to get a look at um, our friend Anya Taylor Joy and then you'd want to tell me with a straight face that uh, she's a woman, woman of, of color, color. Yeah. in the same way that Clojo. Yeah, I, I don't think that you would be able to. To convince, but uh, you know, I mean, I don't know that she's ever even particularly posited herself as a woman of color. No, no, but the way that we talk about race in America today is so dumb and arbitrary that (laughs) 
Uh, but again, probably not a topic that we are going to have beyond the scope of this you know, podcast. I'm particularly afraid. unique insights with Mark Ruffalo. One love Mark Ruffalo. Um, he's just he's just a good guy. I'd like to have a beer with Mark. Ruffalo. Love Jason Sudeikis, and I love Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso was such a good show. Everyone, you who, told me to watch it, and I just haven't yet. You need to you need to watch Ted Lasso. Anyone who's listening, you need to watch Ted Lasso. It is one of the funniest shows I've seen in a while and such a perfect mixture of a very specific sort of like character from American popular culture being thrust into the setting of a very specific sort of like cynical, dry British comedy show and love it. Love it. Also, we're still letting Jim Parsons run around and be in everything, aren't we? We're still doing that, huh? You know, I can't, I can't, it's, it's not something that, um, makes me so mad as to like want to burn down the world or anything. I mean, yes, the big bang theory was cringe, but okay, fine. He's, been, I mean, dude's got to eat. That's fair. Uh, he's been good in other things. I really liked, uh, normal heart, the, um, HBO, uh, show that, I mean, rather the, um, uh, HBO television movie that was about the, it was, it was an adaptation of this play that was about the AIDS crisis in New York during the 1980s. Oh. Another thing with um, Mark Ruffalo and other actors, very good movie, very good movie, with written by Ryan Murphy, a guy who, who also has his own voice, but unlike Aaron Sorkin, is not so aggressive and... Uh, Okay. Can we can we talk about just real quick? Sorry, I'm uh, I'm way out in the weeds on the Jim Parsons Golden okay. Globe page. Okay. okay. He won Best TV Actor in 2011 and was nominated in 2013 and 2014. Guys, what were we doing? Oh, and a ton of Emmys and a ton. Of, see, who let this happen? The Emmys and the Grammys, although you know we're not talking about acting in that sense, but I remember someone putting it this way. It's like the Emmys kind of have the opposite problem from the Oscars in the sense that it's like the Oscars will oftentimes nominate really niche indie dramas um, rather than the uh, a lot of movies that a bunch of people actually saw big blockbusters, even if they were legitimately really good, even if they could have competed in the category because there's an air of snobbishness to this. Whereas <laughs> the Emmys for whatever reason have the opposite problem in the sense that it's like, we got to nominate the lowest common denominator stuff. Even if it's not particularly good, uh, we got to nominate these shows that everyone's watching. Okay. I, I don't know, man. Um, I mean, that that's more, I think, the case in uh, the comedy for whatever reason. Like, Because, I mean, you think about this, Jim Parsons winning all these Emmys, all these Golden Globes, and I don't think Nick Offerman was ever nominated for... Ron Swanson off the top of my head. Which was arguably a much better consummate characterization. Sure, sure. But see, that's that's just the point. It's like, oh, not so many people are watching Parks and Rec, so what are we going to do, guys? I guess we can't nominate this show. Okay, okay. So it's funny, and I guess this is part of the problem with um, how people judge um, film and television generally. And it, it, it kind of comes to a head in something like the golden globes where they're, uh, theoretically, you know, honoring both. And I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast before, but I remember someone making this interesting point. It's like, it's funny how we judge television versus movies in the sense that it's like, you've talked about it a little bit. It's like, Oh, uh, with a television show, if, 
you say, man, it's kind of slow in the beginning, but it eventually picks up and it's okay for a while. Like that's considered a positive review. Whereas if you're talking about a movie in the sense that it takes forever to get to the good stuff and then it doesn't even have a particularly satisfying ending, th- that's a bad review. But I don't know. And there are probably cultural reasons why we, you know, we've come to judge these two. Uh, bits of media differently my epitome of that judgment scale is when i watched um the punisher mm. on netflix oh my goodness no so <laughs> okay so here's the thing so i watched like there are two seasons of it right so yeah. i watched the first season of it and i mean it's a sh- a bloody macho schlog the whole time it's not enjoyable at all but i remember getting to the end of it and sitting in my bedroom and feeling depressed and dark and just being like that eh, wasn't that bad and it's like, that's the metric for TV. If that had been a film, I would have broken my MacBook in half. See, it's like, honestly, I don't even think correct uh, description of it, because if it was just a bloody slog, there definitely would have been like action fans who would have loved that. But really, it was just it was so slow. Like there were big stretches where there was not even a lot of action beyond like Frank Castle finding microchip and punching him in a room and okay. <laughs> like this whole time he's just bullying a nerd. Yeah. Like for like a whole episode. What even is this show? Who is this for? It's for Frank Castle. <laughs> but you know, it's like we as a society have kind of also have a weird way of viewing the Punisher as a character because it is true. The character has been co-opted by, like a bunch of alt-right guys and other kind of weirdos who want to talk about him as though, yeah, yeah, he's who we should live up to, which makes all these writers at Marvel really panicky because, oh, no, oh, no, we can't we can't have these far-right guys uh, idolizing the character. So now we've got to write this, our, our comic, as though Frank Castle is actually like a generic Biden voter who, who hates everything about himself but still does it, you know? And he's like, nobody should do what I do. And then just goes well, I mean, and there, there's shoots a guy. I, I, we've lost at some point the, the the ability to kind of appreciate that you can find a character compelling as a, a protagonist without actually agreeing with what he does. Like maybe Frank Castle is an awful person and we can let that be. And if someone wants to misinterpret that, uh, let them, you that's know, like, that's like the vast majority of people that miss the boat on Fight Club. Like you can't mm. you can't just be like, oh, well, you shouldn't watch Fight Club. We have to rewrite the character like. You know, Mm -hmm. you're, you're free to misinterpret and project all that you want, bud. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, we, yeah, I agree. It's like, oh, they're going to use that inspiration to go and storm the Capitol again or something. If someone was going to storm the Capitol because of like underlying deep political uh, processes in the history of the United States that have eventually uh, come to this, they weren't not going to do it because they didn't like read a, a Punisher comic, you know? Well, it's like, hey, but we made Frank Castle kind of an establishment lib. Oh, I'm going to stay home. I mean, <laughs> just screw it. The whole thing's gone. Like, yeah, no. No, like the people who think this have um, the smoothest of brains. Um, man, so now I'm just, I'm thinking of older Netflix-based Marvel IPs, and I miss Jessica Jones. I know that you weren't the biggest fan of Jessica Jones I like the, the first time, season of Jessica Jones but, well enough. I mean, it does do that thing where it gets slow toward the middle and is, has an okay conclusion, but every subsequent season was entirely unnecessary, and... <laughs> Um, I didn't mind it, but it's probably just because I liked the world enough that I didn't care what they did. Well, see, and, you know, maybe this is a hot controversial take. Cancel me all you want. But 
people wanted to sing out, single out Iron Fist for being this uniquely bad Marvel Netflix show. And to be clear, it was not great. But let's be real. The reason you guys gave the latter bits of, um, you know, Jessica Jones and Luke Cage a soft pass is because, you know, you like the idea of a show about, you know, uh, a trauma survivor becoming a superhero. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should absolutely have representation, but we don't also need to pretend that it's like great television on the same level as, say, The Sopranos or whatever. But ne- then when we finally got to Iron Fist, it was equally generic and, you know, just not very well put together. But it also had the whitewashing controversy. So that's when all of the people who had quietly sort of been dissatisfied with Jessica Jones and Luke Cage and whatever finally said, yep, we're going to nail them now. We're going to nail them now with Iron Fist, the show that is pretty much made in the same factory as these other Marvel Netflix shows. But um, now we don't have, you know, uh, an excuse to say it's progressive. You know, you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I can get behind that. I could also see it and interpret it as a case of. Um, people will tolerate mediocrity to a point, And then when you do too many in a row, it breaks the camel's back. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I didn't really care a lot when that show came out. I wasn't watching it. I didn't hear a lot of people talk about it. So admittedly not a big, uh, big take from me there, but I mean, the big reason that I resented Luke Cage is because they did Marishala Ali who played, uh, cotton mouth in that show. He did him dirty. And I thought, Oh my gosh, they're not, now we can't use him in another Marvel project, but Hey, he's going to be blade now. So that was a very pleasant surprise for me when, uh, I was like, Oh man, we're getting a blade movie and another blade movie. And we're getting it from this great actor. And I, that that's probably one of the top Marvel movies I'm looking forward to love blade while we're just giving takes about TV shows. <laughs> um, daredevil. I I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't get into it. I tried. I tried real hard. I was, I was like over a season in. I think I was into season two mm-hmm. and it was literally never interesting. Most of the first season is what's his nuts, just getting the absolute shit beat out of him and then sitting on someone's couch for an episode. Like that happens several times and he's not a superhero. He's just dumb. Very good. And some of yeah, sure. and some of the characters while overwrought, there was ultimately like a pretty good kind of philosophical conflict under these things in the sense that you had uh, Matt Murdock, who's this character who's supposed to be a strong Catholic and he very strongly believes in redemption. And so how can I be a vigilante going around and just busting heads whenever I want to? Can I kill somebody? And ultimately he comes down with his, you know, uh, own equivalent of the no kill rule and all that sort of thing. And again, so there were some interesting ideas shared here, but the second season was when they introduced the Punisher Right. And the writers decided, you know what? This is just going to be a Punisher show now. We're just doing Punisher before he even got his own show. And Matt Murdock was so entirely sidelined that eventually he just agreed with Punisher toward the end. Yeah, man, we should be killing people, I guess. Or at least this one specific guy without any like conflict up to that point to like coming around to Frank's side. It was just the writers decided, man, I really wanted to do we really want to do a Punisher show now. But I, I guess we have to, we're like contractually obligated to include Daredevil too. And they, they half-assed both of the, both elements of it. And it, it was not good. 
just See, I just, I just, I don't know, man. Even the first season, I had a hard time getting on board. Okay. Just because they made him, he just seemed so weak all the time. Like, he could, there were some good fights and stuff, but a lot of it was just him getting absolutely beaten down. And it wasn't so much that it was weak. I heard someone made this point that was interesting. It's like, they were weirdly inconsistent in the sense that Matt Murdock had, like, an equally hard time fighting any bad guy. Like, random a biker in a bar versus magical ninja. It's like he would have an equally hard time fighting either of the, it's like, what is his power level exactly in this show? I was waiting for him to feel like a superhero and he never did Mm -hmm. for me. And so it just, it it didn't tick any boxes for me at all. Jeff, am I detecting some ableism in your comment here? Yes, that's the problem. (laughs) It's because he was blind. It just drove me up the wall. Right. You know, there are very strong rumors that he's going to appear in um, the next Spider-Man movie. Like the the this same iteration of the character with the same actor and everything. And even though Daredevil was kind of underwhelming to me, I, I, I can't lie and say that I'm not excited for this to happen because on the one hand, you know, Daredevil is ultimately a, a, at his core, like a good character, even if I didn't care for the show that much. So it's interesting to get the, see, see the character getting love, but also now that it's like tying back into the mainstream Mar- Marvel universe, potentially it on some level, I know this shouldn't be the case, but on some level it makes me feel, Hey, maybe my investment in this show is going to be worth it now because (laughs) the character is actually coming back at some point and it is tying into the movie. So whatever, Hey, whatever, whatever gives you your gratification out of your watch, man, whatever does it for you. I mean, I, as, as much as I would love to sit here and just hot take every show that I've watched for the last five years. Um, I don't know. I, I, I still stand by the fact that the, that game of Thrones fans are obnoxious people who are mad that other people can't enjoy their misery. Just, just like the whole thing where it's like, Oh, well, none of the characters are immortal. That's what makes it realistic. What? And that whole take that everybody spouts every time. What? But then you look at all of the other significant works of fiction in the entire world. And it's like, Oh, that's so fake that Bilbo and Frodo and Sam would all live to the end. Right. That totally ruined the suspension. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's a good literary take, bud. I don't know, man. This feels kind of like a 2015, 2016 take in the sense that it's like nobody hates Game of Thrones now more than Game of Thrones fans because the last season. Yeah, but they, the they maintain so that it was perfect canon up to like season seven. And I'm still sitting here saying, no, your show had some pretty glaring problems the whole way through y'all were just willing to deal with it and circle jerk about it because you had production value and George R. R. Martin. And so now everybody's come around to the other side when they realize that the writers had their dicks in their hands and it's like, huh, that's sorry. I have a lot of pent up rage I, about this. See, at one point in time I would have like argued with you on this point, but it's like, honestly, yeah, fair. Why not? Why not? Why not? <laughs> the show is garbage okay so yeah you're right you are right like uh, <sighs> what do you want a metal or a chest to pin it on <laughs> <laughs> and yes on some level it does uh, just rend at my soul that this show that i spent so much time walking watching turned out to be as dust in my mouth but we all got to keep on living man um 
Can I hear your best Donald Duck impersonation before we go? Can I can I get a Donald from you? Whack, 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 I was in such suspense because I was really hoping you were just going to, like, go for it. Quack, 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 I don't know, man. I don't know. No, I love asking people to do a Donald because no one has a good Donald. No one. Not even the person who does Donald Duck. I'm pretty sure they treat it. a Donald Duck line? Does he speak actual no, no, words? He, I mean, he definitely says things. It's just... I'm trying to think of a single solitary piece of dialogue. You, I, you, uh, this is awful, but the only Donald Duck line I can think of off the top of my head is when it, the, the bit in um, um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where him and Daffy have that dueling uh, piano um, thing, and Donald calls Daffy a racial slur. <laughs> and... There's so much they got away with in that movie. There's so much that they got away with in that movie that was like this nominal kids movie. Um, Disney's been caught a couple times with their hands in the yeah, cookie jar. This this one, this one, it's like they threw everything in it. It was, uh, yeah, no. It's a good movie, though. Well, that's like I was rewatching an old Tom and Jerry skit the other day, and I'd never realized how badly they uh, caricatured black women in that show. It was rough. And it's not even like the bottom 10 worst, like, no. like racial characterizations of the of the golden age of animation. You know, um, it, it's one of those things where I, I guess it is better to do the. Um, the disclaimer at the beginning of the cartoon, if you're watching it on Disney yeah, Plus yeah, yeah, or yeah. HBO Max, and to just censor it out of existence, but uh, doesn't you know, make it more comfortable to it see. Does, an no, action. it does. It doesn't. It really doesn't. It's, it's one of those things where it's like people are getting mad about the um, the various Doctor Seuss books being pulled out of circulation, and uh, I saw a post about that. Can we can we talk about that briefly? Well, I mean, what's the what's the deal? Well, it, it look. Spoiler alert, it's none of the five books that anyone cares about. You know, we're not talking about Green Eggs and Ham or the Lorax or whatever being taken out of circulation. It's a couple of his more lesser known works, and it's for kind of, you know, incidental things. Like, there's one about they're building a zoo, and um, they have um, some stereotypical um, drawings of African tribesmen and uh, Chinese people and such in the works, and... Um, the thing is, at the end of the day, these are books that are primarily in, have a, a very like utilitarian function of, we got to get kids to learn how to read. Let's try to figure out, um, something that will make reading seem kind of fun to them. Right. And we can argue about whether it works or not. There's some people who want to criticize Dr. Seuss for using all the nonsense words, just, you know, again, from an academic perspective, but again, that's the goal, right? Yeah. And we can argue about the nonsense words, but if you have in the year of our Lord, 2021 and beyond all these like objective racial caricatures in the books, I mean, I don't want to like censor history or anything, but at the same time, it's like you're bringing up a whole conversation that needs to be had be had in class or whatever about the history of it to like three year olds, maybe. And we're just trying to get them to read right now, you know, so anything that's like throwing too much at them at this early age in a very specific context in the conversation of how to get them to learn how to read, I get the sense is probably counterproductive. 
You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I agree. Like, if it if it's something that has outward, very clear racial implications and bias and stuff like that, sure, pull mm-hmm. it, get it out. Because there are lots of people who are still writing kids' books, and we've learned how to do it better, arguably, in time, right? Mm-hmm. And newer publications have access to newer technologies and such. But that being said, I've seen some posts online calling for basically, we're trying to holistically cancel Dr. Seuss, like I, just pull all of the books. Well, And I don't, I don't know that that's the answer to that question. Well, it's because they're trying to do it for reasons on, people aren't trying to pull green eggs and ham because of green eggs and ham. They're trying to pull uh, Dr. Seuss for... Being Theodore, a racist. Theodore Geisel for having right, and you know what, the the part of my brain that will actually entertain conspiracy theories kind of <laughs> ha- can't help but notice that there's a huge overlap between a lot of these social justice activists and like these young terminally online people who are all trying to style themselves as like YA novelists, and it's like <laughs> if we cancel half the canon. Maybe that means schools will put like our dog shit books in their curriculum. It's like, no, no, nobody wants to see your Harry Potter ripoff. It's not going to even if we take Moby Dick out, we're not putting we're not putting your intersectional take on the Hunger Games in (laughs) in seventh grade. And we're not put. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I I don't want to tinfoil hat it too far, but there are also there's a su- suspicious overlap in the musical world as well between people who want to cancel a lot of classical canon and just throw the whole thing away and people who are composing new works that are not maybe performing so well. And to be fair, there is legitimate discourse to be had. Obviously, you know, mm-hmm. programming Beethoven for the 18,000th time isn't always the right move. But it's okay to have a little Beethoven every now and then as a treat. Yeah, sure. And, and you can have a little Dr. Seuss every now and then as a treat, I think. Yeah, sure. And, like, on some level, I do agree, like, uh, the canon as we teach it today is far too centered on the dead white males. And, sure. And, uh, look, I, I guess, because the thing is, even before there were any social justice implications in this conversation, it always baffled me that in high school we read, like, three Shakespeare plays a semester. And it was like... There's a lot we, of Shakespeare. We, we, it's see all of these trends are are solely dictated as to what's currently in the vogue among like young people who are taking a getting their master's degree in English lit or whatever. Right. Sure. So that's why it swings wildly and why we're now in like the Robin D'Angelo uh, center of the universe right now and it'll swing back at some point it'll swing back and we're going to read nothing but Odysseus and the original Greek and I don't know man I, I enjoyed studying the Greek classics I found those immensely more interesting than like the Mark Twain that I had to read sure sure but yeah it's like half of this stuff is not worth getting worked up about and half the people who think it's the fall of western civilization that we're taking like five Dr. Seuss books out of circulation. Or that we're just calling it potato head. (laughs) Go outside. Go outside. (laughs) Take a break, bro. You know, it's the world will keep on spinning. I promise you. Somehow that will not be the moment that we will look back on from in our caves with our little tomes and be like, that's when it went down with the potato head. I saw some like, some like guy reply to uh, one story about the potato head thing uh, with this comment that it was like, we need to secede again. I'm like, 
and, and someone did this and it's like to be fair it's a better reason for secession than the last time uh, that's like well so did the south secede over was it states rights was it slavery it was it was the freaking potato head <laughs> that was the that was uh, the smoking gun and they didn't even actually change the character's name it's like people getting worked up over some like again perspective perspective a guys. prefix <laughs> I also I just want to say I said Mark Twain. Um, so Tom Sawyer is Mark Twain, correct? Yes. Okay, fantastic. Just checking myself before I make myself look like a buffoon. Uh, you, so you have power of edit. You can take that out anyway. You know. <laughs> no, I will be authentic. <laughs> um, so do you? I don't know if you ever saw the Fairly Odd Parents episode where uh, Timmy decides to wish book characters to life, but he wishes Tom Sawyer to life, and he is a miserable, awful, horrible curmudgeon that attempts to ruin and take over the world because he doesn't want to go back to Missouri. And I think that should be the canon representation of Tom Sawyer. I don't want to read that book. I don't want anyone to read that book. Just watch the Fairly Odd Parents episode. I remember where it was, there was an episode where he brings various historical characters to, the, or maybe it was like American presence specifically into the future, and all of them had very specific representation. But the, they brought George Washington forward, and his deal was that he just had this maniacal <laughs> compulsion to chop wood. Like, he just wanted to chop down cherry trees all is, the time. Is that, is that the, okay, like that's, Oh, you know about George Washington? Okay. See, I you can't do an episode where you bring former presidents back to the present because I've seen some tweets and I love them. It's like, if you gave someone who initially came over on the Mayflower, if you gave a pilgrim a sip of a monster energy drink, it would kill them on the spot. Mm -hmm. They would die instantly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's like, I, I, I don't understand. I mean... We talk about like bringing people from the past to the future. And it's like, no, the last thing they would care about is how the government works. They would be like, wait, what's a computer? Why is it bright when it's dark outside? <laughs> like they would have so many more questions. And then when they got around to the government, they'd be like, wait, you're still doing it that way. If anything, they'd be like, wait, it hasn't changed in 300 years. What are you doing? Benjamin Franklin would be like, honestly, I don't give a shit. I'm just getting that LASIK right now. <laughs> And then he would get struck by lightning because well, that's Ben Franklin. They, I guess. they have treatment for half of like the STDs that I have. I need to head back to France now. You know. Wait, like, you you live how long? <laughs> Wait, you get married at what age? What are you gonna do? I I think that that was enough of a just devolution into madness for today. <laughs> I I cannot possibly imagine wringing anything else out of this session that would warrant terrorizing another human with hearing him. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> So this has been a very special episode of the Daily Brain Bleed. Full, full disclosure, we had to move our recording this week for uh, logistical purposes um, that we haven't had to deal with the last couple weeks. So thank you for bearing with us as we do a slightly more off-the-cuff approach right. to our regular super scripted, super PG, you know, Lifeway-sponsored uh, podcast. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of the editing bay in a form that's both legible and will probably not get us canceled. <laughs> I'm going to have to sniff a lot of glue while I'm editing this episode, but it's fine. I look forward to it. All right. My name is Tucker. My name is Jeff. Have a good week. <laughs>